Welcome to another edition of Garden Talk. Hi, Larry Miller here. Great to have you with us today as we welcome back Brian Huddleston, Director of the Plant Disease Diagnostic Clinic in the Department of Plant Pathology at UW-Madison. He's also the author of Limerick Etsia, a plant pathologist book of verse. And it, it is really a fun, fun read. Uh, well, maybe we'll talk with him about the book, but we're going to start by talking about uh, drought stress and take your other disease questions. And I hope you'll join in as we move along. The number to call is 800 642 1234. It's 800 642 1234. Or you could send an email to ideas at wpr.org. Ideas at wpr.org. Brian Huddleston, welcome back. Good to have you with us. Uh, thanks, Larry. Glad to be here. Another dry year. How does that, how does the drought stress plants and, 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 and related to disease? Um, for the most part, a lot of the diseases that I deal with, um, the disease-causing organisms prefer really wet conditions. So we tend to see a real reduction in leaf diseases. Uh, in particular, also things like root rots tend to be less of a problem during dry years. The one group of diseases where we tend to see an uptick when it's dry, as long as we have really muggy weather, are powdery mildews. Those particular fungi are a little bit of an anomaly in that they prefer not a lot of rain. They don't want wet leaves, but uh, they like it really nice and humid. Yeah. And we had those conditions this year, so it was very dry in terms of lack of rain, but it was it was a humid year. Chlorosis, I guess we've seen a fair amount of chlorosis this year. Um, and maybe describe what that looks like. Yeah, that's a really not a true disease. We call it a disorder because there's no microorganism that's involved in causing it. It's technically a nutrient deficiency. And oftentimes what you'll see in terms of symptoms are trees or shrubs where the leaves start to turn a lighter green or they can even become very yellow, but with really distinctive green veins. And that's typically, depending upon the plant, either due to an iron deficiency or a manganese deficiency. So I see this a lot on pin oaks. Um, you'll see it on rhododendrons and azaleas. If you grow blueberries, um, that could be an issue as well. It's usually an iron deficiency in those plants. If you're dealing with something like red maple, which will also is also quite susceptible to chlorosis, it's oftentimes a manganese uh, deficiency in the plant. And it's not that we don't necessarily have these nutrients in the soil. Our big problem here in Wisconsin is our underlying bedrock is limestone, which tends to cause the soil pH to be relatively high. And that high soil pH will lock up these nutrients in the soil so the plants can't take them up. And I think this year it's been particularly bad because we don't have a lot of water that can mobilize the nutrients that are available in the soil so the plants can take them up. So I've been seeing really severe chlorosis. It can get to the point where it's not just yellowing of the tissue, but that intervenal tissue will actually die and turn brown. So is there something that, you know, we can do? Uh, the big thing is probably uh, plant selection. When you're putting in a new landscape, be aware that our soil pHs tend to be high and quite frankly, do some soil testing before mm -hmm. you establish a landscape and make sure that you are planting plants that are adapted to whatever soil pH you have. And again, for many areas of the state, it's going to be high. So make sure you're not planting things like pin oaks or uh, birch trees also have problems. And um, then the other thing would be if you have existing landscapes, you 
can do some things to try to lower the soil pH, but that can be a lot of effort, a lot of time and a lot of expense. So it's best to deal with these sorts of questions as you established a landscape rather than trying to deal with them after the fact. You mentioned powdery mildew and Gary in Madison has a question that relates to that, I believe. Let's go there. Gary, hi. Thank you for calling. Hi. Yeah. Um, so I guess uh, that's what I got. Um, and it got on one peonies plant and then the mm-hmm. whole thing really kind of turned white. And then yeah. sure enough, time went on. Two more uh, turned, started getting it. Then one mm-hmm. across the across the yard got it. And mm-hmm. I'm just wanting to know what do I need to do now or in the spring so that I don't have the problem. Yeah, the thing is you're probably going to have at least some level of powdery mildew every year. The good thing about powdery mildews in most cases is that they tend to be pretty cosmetic diseases, so they don't do a lot of real damage to the plants. So the main thing I would do to try to lower the level of powdery mildew that you have would be to make sure you do good cleanup of any of that leftover plant debris. So you can do it in the fall, or if you like to leave plant material kind of as an overwintering site for beneficial insects, then you want to do this in the spring before the plants begin to relief out, before they begin to sprout. And that's, you want to remove this material because that's where the powdery mildew fungi hang out in that old plant debris. And you can take that, if you're in the Madison area, you could take it to the city um, recycle centers where they take yard waste, or if you want to try to deal with it yourself, the normal ways we recommend would be to burn it if you have that option. That's not necessarily an option in an urban setting. You can bury it, so cover it with soil, or if you're a good hot composter and do composting properly, you could actually compost that material if you wanted to. But the big thing is don't get really uptight about powdery mildews because of the diseases that I see they are relatively um, low on the list of the ones that are going to cause real serious problems. Other things you may want to consider if your peonies have gotten really big, the clump is very large, would be to dig it up, divide it, make smaller clumps. That tends to allow for better airflow around the plants, and that will lower the humidity around the leaves, and that can make a less favorable environment for these fungi to infect. So removal of debris and anything you can do to improve airflow to reduce humidity, those are the two common things that we recommend right. and, and good, good fall cleanup. Gary, does that help out? Oh, yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you. All right, well. appreciate the call. You can join in, too. Number to call, 1-800-642-1234, or you could email us the email address, Ideas at WPR.org. Ideas at WPR.org. Brian, we get lots of listeners calling about their lilacs. Mm -hmm. What's going on with the leaves uh, drying up? That could be, well, this year my first guess would would be to wonder whether or not they're just drought stressed. um, Because it's just been so, so dry. And a lot of people when they have established trees and shrubs, they just don't necessarily think about watering them. But uh, definitely during droughty periods like we've been having, uh, you need to supplemental water if you wanna keep those trees and shrubs healthy. And that's not only lilacs, it's just trees and shrubs in general. Normally what we recommend is about an inch of water per week. And that's either from natural rain or supplemental water. And you want for something that's deciduous like a lilac, you'd wanna make sure the shrubs are getting that at the time that they start to bud out in the spring all the way through the summer into the fall up until the point when they start to turn their normal fall color 
And if you need to supplement a water, I would suggest using a soaker hose or a drip hose to get that moisture into the soil and kind of concentrate watering in the drip zone. So that would be the area between the base of the shrub and out to the edge of where the branches extend. Now, if we were in a wetter year, and one of the things I, was, I saw several years prior to this year, there is a fungal disease called septoria leaf spot, and that will cause browning on leaves as well. It usually starts, the symptoms will start on the bottom leaves and the disease will kind of work its way up the shrub. With that, you kind of treat it very similarly to what I described for powdery mildews, good cleanup of that infected leaf debris in the fall or before the shrubs leaf out in the spring and then burn berry hot compost, take it to your local recycle area that deals with yard waste. And that oftentimes can help um, at least reduce the level of that disease. But I think we're gonna see a reduction in that disease just because it's been so dry. It's not been a good good year for that yeah, particular it, problem. It's been a couple of years now at least. Yeah, that's been dry. And for that disease, which was getting relatively severe on lilacs, I think it's been good that we've had this dry weather because that will kind of knock back that particular pathogen. Yeah, it's been a strange few years for lilacs, just in particular, because people were, yeah. at one point, were phoning in about, suddenly my lilacs are flowering again, you know, and yeah. it's yep. late and, in the uh, season, and why in the heck is that, you know? Yeah, and <laughs> lilacs are the poster child, as far as I'm concerned, for powdery mildews as well because they tend to get powdery mildew every year, no matter what. And it's a prime example of a plant where it's not a disease to worry about on that particular plant because they get the disease and it doesn't seem to affect them much at all. Yeah. So uh, sometimes disease originates below the surface of the soil. Mm -hmm. um, with the dry conditions, that's probably not been as big a problem or has it? No, uh, root rots are the big um, thing that we see that are caused by soilborne pathogens. And most of the root rot pathogens that I tend to see tend to be more of a problem when we have wetter years. So there's a group of organisms called the water molds. So Pythium and Phytophthora are examples of those organisms. They're called water molds for a reason. They really like wet soils. And then they're, they're, these are fungi-like organisms. They're not true fungi. And then there are a group of true fungi that will cause root rots as well. And they tend to do better in wetter conditions as well. Interestingly, though, there are certain root rots that I, or one in particular that I can think of that tends to be more of an issue when it's a little hotter and drier. Um, it's called, the disease is called charcoal rot. And it's caused by a, a true fungus, macrophomina. Phaseolina. And again, I tend to see an uptick in that particular pathogen in years that it's relatively hot and dry. It's more adapted to those sorts of conditions. It's more of a problem, quite frankly, on crops, uh, field crops like soybeans, but I occasionally see it on trees and shrubs um, as well. Aaron sent us an email. Uh, this year, his tomatoes got what he thinks is bacterial wilt. They looked like they needed water, but the soil was still moist. Over time, the inside of the stems became hardened and hollowed out. Uh, does this sound like the right diagnosis? And what can he do besides not planting any nightshades in the bed, in his bed? When, when I hear about wilted tomatoes, there are just so many things that can cause that. Uh, the first question I have trained myself over the years to ask people is, do you have a walnut tree near your garden? Because oftentimes that's the issue, walnuts produce toxins 
and they're exuded by the roots and quite frankly can be found in any part of the tree. But if you plant tomatoes near a walnut tree, you're gonna have wilting problems. Uh, walnuts are, or excuse me, tomatoes are probably one of the more susceptible plants to these toxins. So that's a possibility I would look into that. And what do I mean by near? Uh, keep in mind that if you have a walnut tree, kind of estimate the height and then say you've got a 30 foot tree, those roots from that tree will go out probably on the order of 90 to 150 feet away from the tree. So three to five times the height of the tree away from the trunk. So you can have these adverse effects from walnut trees pretty far from the actual trunk of the tree. Other things that are possibilities could be uh, certain soilborne fungi, verticillium is one of them, fusarium is another. They infect through the roots, colonize the water conducting tissue and block it off, that'll lead to the wilt. Um, bacterial diseases are a possibility as well. There's um, bacterial canker is probably the most common of those diseases. That particular pathogen tends to be brought in on contaminated seed and it will colonize the water conducting tissue at least initially cause blockages and that will lead to wilting. Usually eventually though, it kind of breaks out and you'll actually get a visible cankered or infected area that you can see on the lower stem. And that one you just basically manage by rotating away from their area and then making sure you're uh, working with a, buying a real high quality seed. Um, they're also, also if you're saving seed, you might wanna consider um, doing hot water seed treatments of your seed before you plant it, or if you have a, you're buying seed from somewhere and you have a questionable source, there are these hot water treatments that you can do on a variety of different types of seeds, but definitely tomato seeds that will help kill off these um, seedborne pathogens. We have a very nice fact sheet on that on my clinic website if people want to uh, look that up. So basically it's bathing them in, in hot water. Yes, uh, but you have to be very, very careful. It <laughs> yeah. has to be the right temperature and the right timing. Um, if you don't do, if you do too low a temperature and don't treat long enough, you won't get rid of the pathogen. If you treat too long or too high a temperature, you'll kill the seed. So timing is every and, and temperature is everything. Brian Huddleston, our guest today, director of the Plant Disease Diagnostic Clinic in the Department of Plant Pathology at UW Madison, our guest today. Jill Dole, our producer, Tyler Ditter, our engineer. I'm Larry Mueller for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. Thanks so much for joining us today for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. Larry Mueller here with my guest, Brian Huddleston, director of the Plant Disease Diagnostic Clinic at the UW-Madison in the Department of Plant Pathology. He's uh, known as Dr. Death. And it's always fun to talk with him, uh, actually, even though we are talking about problem areas. I hope you'll join in. If you have a question, maybe something going on with your plants or that maybe that did this summer, give us a call. The number is 800-642-1234, 1-800-642-1234, or email to ideas at wpr.org. Let's go to Todd in Ottawa next. Hi, Todd. Hi. Boy, I love the Larry uh, Mueller show and uh, beautiful day in Wisconsin. I have a, a, a question, a Lazarus story also. So, Dr. Death, I was hoping maybe you could help resurrect a tree for me. I had a river <laughs> oak that I planted that a few years ago when we had our last doubt, drought uh, just lost its leaves midsummer and surprisingly um, came back to life and, and is now doing fine. Now, I have... Um, just a beautiful linden tree 
transplanted maybe 15 to 20 years ago, and it had has a couple insults. One I inflicted uh, with the lower limb. I didn't cut it, I think, as well as I should. It tore a little bit. Um, didn't think too much of it. But um, now I, some uh, bird, I think, has also been picking away. And um, But this spring, it, it went to leaf. It went to it had a great aroma, and then it slowly died, and the leaves are still attached. Can I, is, is there a chance that I could maybe pray for this to be a Lazarus situation or, or do I, do I take it down this winter? What I would be inclined to do would be to leave it up over the winter and see whether it leaves out in the spring. I, I have a feeling it probably won't, but I think it's worthwhile, you know, keeping it there, seeing what it does. Um, you may want to, again, particularly if we get another dry season or if it looks like it's going to be really dry if it does leaf out consider supplemental watering for the tree and again that would start at the time it begins to leaf out in the spring assuming that it does um it, it could be a victim of drought stress uh, we've seen a lot of trees and shrubs die just because they're not getting enough water the other thing with linden is it is susceptible to verticillium wilt i mentioned this in the context of tomatoes but that particular disease has a wide host range and linden is one of the trees that can be killed by this particular disease. Again, it's a soil-borne pathogen, invades through the roots and blocks the water-conducting tissue. If you are dealing with that and need to replace the tree, I would suggest um, uh, checking, again, my website in the fact sheet section. We have a fact sheet on that disease, and it provides a list of what we suggest as replacement trees. Usually the trees we recommend for replacement for that disease, your best bet is probably a conifer of some kind, so an evergreen sort of uh, tree or shrub. They, those particular plants don't seem to be susceptible to the disease, and if you want to go for a deciduous tree, one of my personal favorites that's on that list is ginkgo. It's relatively slow growing, but I think it's a beautiful tree, nice fan-shaped leaves, a very ancient tree. It's actually more closely related to the evergreens we plant than to our true deciduous trees that we have nowadays. But um, it's got a really cool history if you want to read up about that. Uh, but there are other options on there. Um, the other tree that I kind of like on there is hackberry, which is a relative of elm, and uh, it's a larger tree. The downside to that one that some people don't like, it does get an inset gall on the leaves that will produce, they look like a little uh, pencil erasers on the leaves and people get upset by that. The name for that is nipple gall, uh, but I, I like that tree as well. But I would hold off, check to see whether it recovers in the spring and then go from there. I was just thinking about uh, Maui and the, the the terrible fire and the, the famous tree that was com looked like it was completely charred. And here it is, uh, growing leaves have suddenly <laughs> reappeared. It, it's amazing, yeah. the resilience. Yes. And so you really don't know at this point. That's why I suggest not, you know, jumping the gun and, and, uh, and yeah. cutting it down right away. Yeah. Good luck, Todd. Thanks uh, a lot for calling. Appreciate it. Well, let's go to Lee in Green Bay next. Hi, Lee. Yes, hi. Um, I don't know if you could answer this question or not, but I have four accolade elms. I've had them in for 18 to 20 years or maybe 8 to 10 inches in diameter. The last two or three years, I have had sapsuckers, the birds. 
Now, mm-hmm. there are hundreds of holes in that tree. Mm-hmm. Does that affect that? Yeah, it certainly is is not good for the tree because you're creating wounds and those can provide entry points. From my perspective as a as a plant pathologist, those holes provide entry points for potentially for disease causing organisms. Um, so anything you can do to kind of detr- uh, distract the birds and keep them away from the trees to keep them from feeding would be a good thing. There is a very nice uh, publication that's available from our uh, extension uh, publications website. It's the Learning Store. So Learning Store, oh, I can't remember the exact Learning URL. LearningStore.uwex.edu, old... something like that? Yeah, that's the old URL. It's not the current one, but <laughs> it, it will work. That one will work. Um, in any event, if you go on there and then do a search on um, woodpeckers, um, there's a, a publication on woodpeckers and their management and a sapsuckers are a type of woodpecker. And you can read up more on those particular birds and how to kind of manage them. Uh, any, you might want to consider, given that it's an elm, when you see those wounds, maybe going out there and taking a little bit of paint and covering those wounds and you don't need to buy any sort of fancy pruning paint. If you've got some leftover latex paint from painting your home, you can use that. We don't recommend uh, using painting over wounds. Oftentimes, sometimes that can slow up um, the natural process where trees produce tissue to cover over those wounds. But oftentimes we'll recommend that if you've got a wounded oak tree or an elm tree. So that's a possibility, but anything you can do to keep those birds away from the tree, I think would be useful. Lee, thanks uh, for calling, uh, and good luck. Robert in Madison, it's your turn. Hi, Robert. Hi. Uh, good morning. So I, I had a question about um, apple scab for my crabapple tree. Um, mm-hmm. I usually I usually spray in the spring because wetter spring, and to kind of control it. And then we had a really dry summer, and then we had about a month or so ago, we had like all this rain come down and my tree mm-hmm. just exploded an apple scab and it dropped all its leaves. It looks dead right now. Do you think that it will come back next spring? Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't worry too much about um, that particular disease. Uh, crab apples and apples tend to be quite resilient. Uh, it's going to, if you see defoliation like that year after year, it's going to stunt the tree, but the trees usually come back, leaf out fine in the spring and then also um, will produce typically lots of flowers as well. So I'm not terribly worried. Make sure you clean up all of that leaf debris. Um, and you know, there's some possibility that it wasn't apple scab that was the issue. Oftentimes, if you control that early in the season, you don't see a real big epidemic towards the end of the year. So there might be some other issue that you're dealing with. But in general, for anything that I can think of that might cause that sort of defoliation, if it's a disease, foliar disease, just cleaning up the leaf debris and getting rid of that will be um, useful. Yeah. But you're quite right. If you're going to treat, if you're going to use fungicides for that particular disease, and that's that's kind of a personal preference, um, it, those really early applications right as the leaves come out are typically the most important applications because you kind of reduce the number of initial infections and that will reduce the number of subsequent infections that you get as we move through the summer. So um, I think you did ex- you did exactly what I would have told you to do while it was wet in the spring, make your applications. It got really dry, so stop making applications. And as you get really late in the season, it doesn't really make a lot of sense 
even if it gets wet to make additional applications because even if you get that leaf loss, it's not going to have a huge impact on the tree. Yeah. Good points. Robert, thank you. Josh in Eau Claire, uh, speaking of apples, I think has an apple question as well. Hi, Josh. Hi. Yeah, I do. I, I Over the pandemic, I kind of got bored and I, I grafted up a lot of apple trees or a few hundred apple trees and I had them in a, a small nursery and I did transplant them out into a field and, and built an orchard fence and such, but I, I've lost a few of the two or three-year-old trees to... Uh, I don't know if it's it's kind of like a I don't know if it's a, a fire blight on the root system or or if it's a uh, if it's sun scald like over the last winter and so I, I have a hard time telling I don't I don't know a lot about the diseases so um, I'm a little nervous about leaving them there I kind of was thinking of just <laughs> ripping them out and I would just lose those few trees and just leave the rest of them but is you know what what's indicative of of you know rootstock rootstock uh, fire blight as compared to like sun scald or or that. Yeah, that that's really hard to evaluate just based on visual symptoms. Typically, when we have questions about fire blight, um, my recommendation is to send in a sample to my clinic, and we will test for that. We actually have a little dipstick test. It's it's the same technology as a home pregnancy test, but it tests <laughs> for the disease causing organism that causes fire blight. And interestingly, that that was another disease that's been really, really prevalent this year. So uh, let me finish up answering your question. If you're interested in submitting a sample just to test, I think your idea of removing the trees is probably not a bad idea. If they look really bad and you have concerns about fire blight, if you didn't definitely didn't want to test, I would remove those trees and get them out of your orchard just so that you limit any possible spread. If you want to verify though, to see whether it really is versus sun scold or some other problem, you could send in a sample. And if you want to contact me, my email is uh, P as in Paul, D as in David, D as in David again, C as in Charles at WISC.edu. And then we can discuss, you know, submitting a sample and what the cost would be and all of that fun stuff. Um, but as I mentioned, normally when I see a lot of branch dieback on apples, everybody assumes that, or crab apples or pears, everybody assumes it's fire blight. And in previous years up to this year, lots of times people would send me in samples. They'd say, I think this is fire blight. We do our testing with our little dipstick test. It's negative. And then we find other things that are causing the dieback. Interestingly, this year, tons of fire blight samples have been coming oh. in. In fact, the last two days, I've diagnosed... Um, um, fire blight on cal calorie pear. Now, some people might consider that biological control of that particular plant, seeing that it's considered kind of invasive. Um, but we've been seeing a lot of fire blight. And part of the issue, I think, is, again, that we had a dry summer. And one of the ways in which the fire blight organism can be moved around is by honeybees which will tend to be more active when we have drier weather. When it gets really rainy, they tend not to be out doing their thing. So I think there's, I think the drier weather may have contributed to us seeing an increase in fire blight this year. But boy, have I gotten a lot of samples this year. Of that yeah. Season. And speaking of that, I, Susan emailed, uh, in your experience, she's wondering, is there any hope of restoring health to a tree affected by fire blight? Fire blight. Is there a variety of ornamental pear that resists fire blight? 
And she said, you diagnosed fire blight on our tree several days ago. <laughs> yeah, that was the, probably one of the calorie pairs that I had come in. Um, usually, if you want to try to save a tree that has the disease, you have to be very, very aggressive with pruning. And um, so you look at the branches that are dying back, and that's a typical symptom with fire blight, that you have branch dieback. And one of the things I do look for um, when I get branches in is I look to see whether or not the infection appears to have started around where there was a cluster of flowers. Because again, the honeybees will bring in the mm. bacterium that causes the disease and they inoculate the flowers and things go from there. But once you start to see those dying branches, then you have to kind of look at the interface of the live and dead tissue and you go down about 12 inches below that and that's where you prune. And for smaller trees, what you're basically talking about can be pruning the, the trunk and in, in which case you remove the tree because the assumption is, is the bacterium can move very quickly under the bark. The tissue where it's located may not be symptomatic yet. That's why you have to prune very far down. So you can technically save a tree, but it's, you're going to have to be aggressive with the pruning. Um, and, but the question is, if you have something like a calorie pear, which is considered an invasive species nowadays, um, definitely you may want to consider just giving it up and replacing it with something else. In terms of resistant varieties, I would have to look back and see um, if there is anything um, resistance in pears at least edible pears um, is not really great from what I understand, but I'd have to verify that. There are some apple varieties and certainly crab apple varieties that are resistant mm -hmm. and they will be advertised as such. So you could go to a local nursery and say, I want a variety that's been uh, rated as resistant to fire blight. And typically the resistance is relatively good. But again, you have to worry over time that as we plant more resistant varieties, you can get shifts in the genetics of the pathogen so that the pathogen changes a little bit so it's able to overcome some of the genetic resistance in these resistant varieties. We see this particularly um, probably more so with fungal pathogens that tend to reproduce very rapidly. Mm. You get changes in the pathogen over time and then resistant varieties are no longer really that resistant. So there you go. <laughs> Yeah, sorry, I can't be more specific on that. That's kind of a question where if people really want a, a variety recommendation, I kind of have to dig in the literature to see what the um, varieties are out there. And then then it's not only resistance that you're interested in, but you want size, you want shape, you want flower color, and finding the right combination that someone wants is sometimes a bit difficult. It could be challenging. Uh, let's take another call. By the way, you can join in, too. Number to call, 1-800-642-1234 or email to ideas at wpr.org. Mary in Muskego, it's your turn. Hi, Mary. Hi. Um, I'm just calling. My neighbor grew sweet potatoes this year, and she just okay. harvested them. And they are very bizarre looking. A few look normal, but the m majority of them have all these like ridges and craters all around the whole entire thing that go in both directions it doesn't look like you know any bug chewing or anything per se um just wondering if you have any idea what that might be they look really are, are they weird kind of crusty looking maybe look kind of like scabs if you would skin your knee is that kind of what it looks like by any chance? Well, they, these ridges go up and down crosswise, and then there's maybe little, little um, 
Yeah, in other indentations, um, you know, now she did get some mulch from this city. Is there any chance there could have been something in there that caused this or any that's, idea? That, that's a possibility. I do worry about some. Sometimes you can get issues with um, with certain mulches with herbicide carryovers. It's usually more with um, leafy sort of mulches rather than woody. I'm assuming this was chipped up trees that you got. It's it's very dark, very black almost. Yeah. Uh, okay. It's, it's very yeah. fine. Yeah. There there is a possibility sometimes when um, I'm more familiar with regular potatoes rather than sweet potato, but I know certainly in commercial potato production, you can get really odd looking potatoes if there's been some sort of accidental herbicide exposure to the plant. So that's not outside the realm of possibility. Um, the other thing, the reason I was asking whether it looked like somebody's scabby knee is there is a bacterial disease called scab and the bacterium can survive very easily in the soil. And if you have a root crop, so regular potatoes, sweet potatoes, beets, or carrots are susceptible, you can get these kind of scabby looking areas on the surface of the vegetables. And uh, that is a function of having the bacterium and also it tends to be more of a problem in soils that have a higher pH because the bacterium does better there. So one of the management strategies for that is to try to lower your soil pH after below a, at, at around 5.5 if you can get your soil ph down that low the bacterium basically becomes inactive and so you don't have scab problems uh, but without seeing what the plants look like those are just some guesses um, my suggestion would be it, you know if it's technically herbicide exposure my recommendation would be to not eat the sweet potatoes because those are considered adulterated if it's the scab, you can just peel them and you could use the potatoes. So there you go, Mary. Thank you very much for calling. Appreciate it. We'll go to Brianna in Woodruff next. Hi, Brianna. Hi, Larry. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I have two big leaf hydrangeas that are in pots. And okay. this spring, I gave them the wrong amount of fertilizer. So they're scorched. Um, and it appears like there's some sort of a fungal disease. There's, there are these spots on the leaves. Um, I'm wondering if I'll be able to overwinter these plants again or if they're yeah. a lost cause now. Yeah, the spots could be fungal. Um, they could be bacterial. Both, both occur on hydrangeas. And the normal, again, to figure out which one it is, again, that would be something if you wanted to know, you'd send in a sample to my clinic for me to try to figure it out. But the management for both types of diseases tends to be very similar as the leaves drop, collect those up, get them away from the plant, and then, um, again, burn very hot compost are the typical ways of getting rid of that leaf material. If they are potted, the big thing I would worry about is you probably want to sink those pots into the ground because if you leave them in pots above ground, the root system is gonna get very, very cold, particularly up in your neck of the woods, um, and that will kill the plants. Um, if they're above ground, I would not expect them to survive, but if you can dig a hole and kind of sink those down into the ground, the natural soil will provide a lot of insulation. You could put a little bit of mulch around them to kind of insulate them as well, although I would tend to remove those, that mulch in the spring and then you can dig them back up if you wanted them as potted plants to move around in your yard. 
uh, whenever uh, it gets warm enough in the spring. But I don't think you'll have any problems with them surviving, even from the scorch, from the over-fertilization. Just be very gentle with them. Make sure they're getting enough water and make sure you water them uh, adequately next year. Again, about an inch of water a week is what they will need from the time they butt out through the summer and into the fall until they start to kind of turn their fall color. There you go, Brianna. I think think you should have some success with that. Sounds good. Thanks, Brianna. I'm I'm not my normal pessimistic (laughs) self (laughs) with that particular situation. That's yeah, I'm being optimistic here with several people, and that's so counter to my normal personality with things. Oh, man. Let's go to Edward and uh, McGuanigo next. Hi, Edward. Hi, how are you guys? Good. Appreciate the call. Doing well, thank oh, you. I've got a little uh, reception issue, so I'm hoping I'm coming through clearly. You are. Okay. Uh, so I heard you mention the calorie pear earlier. And I, yeah. I had read that that's an invasive species as well. Yeah. So I moved into my house a few years ago, and on the property, right in the front yard, in front of our kitchen window, is a very large calorie pear. It's about 40 mm-hmm. feet high, maybe a foot and a half, around foot to a foot and a half. It's pretty good size. Um, it had a split kind of at the base where it almost looked like it was two trees growing together. And unfortunately, in July, we had a good storm. And a big chunk of it broke off all the way down to the ground. Now, I'm, I'm worried about two things, and it's the, the pests of the invasive species and then the wintering. So the split was already there. So when it did break away, we cut up everything and moved it. It almost looked like it was already kind of weathered on the inside, so it wasn't totally raw wound. So I didn't okay. treat it. I didn't wrap it. I didn't do anything to it. I'm uh, just wondering your thoughts on that, because I, I know it's an invasive species, but it's so pretty with the flowers and the birds really love it. We get a lot of wildlife attracted to it mm-hmm. all year long. Yeah. Yeah. I, again, my my initial thought is to suggest getting rid of it and replacing it with something that's not invasive. If you really want to keep it around, my next concern would be if you've got a, a tree that had a split trunk like that, that there might be some decay that may have started in that area between the two trunks and then you have to worry about the um, second trunk that remains there becoming eventually compromised and weakened to the point where the tree could snap off or get blown over in another high wind and again if it's near your house then you need to worry about it causing physical damage to your house your car you know members of your family if they would happen to be close by so um, it, it doesn't sound like it was an optimal tree to begin with. I, I understand your reticence to removing it because of the wildlife issues, but there are other trees that you could plant in that area that it would be not in, non-invasive and then would also promote wildlife. One of my favorite trees um, that's a flowering tree is uh, amelanchor or serviceberry. Those come in a variety of sizes and mm-hmm. uh, they produce fruits that the birds really love and uh they're very very pretty kind of like a delicate crab apple tree so that's a possibility of you might want to consider that yeah and edward you mentioned the the birds and that's why the tree is invasive because those birds will be will, spreading yep, seed the all tree. over the countryside. yeah that's the problem well thank you very much for calling appreciate it judy and grafton we go to you Next. Hi, Judy. Hi. Um, 
I called about this, this tree last year. Um, for the, it's, I have a flowering crab. That's what I bought, and it flowered beautifully. Mm-hmm. And now this last year and this year, it's full of apples. And last year, I, I didn't know if they would come back or not. So I didn't, sp- I didn't spray last year, but this year when I saw them starting to come back, I sprayed a couple times, but I have, they have, it looks like a worm or something goes into the core, and when I cut them open, the core is all brown, and mm-hmm. it's got like blotches on the outside. Um, so for, number one, I'm wondering if I can eat these apples, even the ones that are diseased if I can cut them up. I mean, I could make applesauce from the parts that are good, but I'm not sure if I should use them. Yeah. Um, a couple of issues. You, you mentioned that you had sprayed, and you said this was a crab apple tree. Is that correct? It started as a flowering crab. For years, okay. it just had maybe five or six apples, and now suddenly it's mm-hmm. full of apples. Yeah. Um, that may be simply a, a function of how well pollinated it's gotten recently. Um, the question would be what you sprayed on the tree. Normally, the materials that would be labeled for use on crab apples, um, so those particular products probably would not be allowed if you are going to eat um, the apples. So until you know exactly you know what you applied and whether they that's labeled for use on an edible sort of apple tree, because apples and crab apples are basically the same yeah. tree; they just been bred for different characteristics. Um, if you are using these ornamental sorts of materials, typically those, then you would not, you should not be eating those apples. Uh, in terms of if you, let's say that you were using something that allowed you to eat the apples, then the next question is the damage. I would be inclined, our usual recommendation is not to use any fruit that are blemished. So you yeah. would just go after the fruits that are intact and not affected by those insects that you're dealing with. And what you might want to do is send a sample of those compromised fruits down to my colleague, uh, PJ Leash. He runs the insect diagnostic lab uh, at the UW-Madison, and he could identify what the insects are that might be causing the problem. And then he could help you if you want to try to control those so that you can get an edible apple crop, he could provide you with some recommendations on what to use and the proper formulations, the proper products to use. There you go, Judy. Thank you so much for calling. Brian Huddleston, our guest today. I'm Larry Mueller. You're listening to Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. You're listening to Garden Talk on the Ideas Network, taking a look at plant disease today with Brian Huddleston, director of the Plant Disease Diagnostic Clinic at UW-Madison. Always great to have Brian come by and questions. Join in at 800-642-1234. Email to ideas at wpr.org. Brian uh, Lysia in Spring Green emailed us to ask what you thought might be affecting the leaves on her pawpaw tree. And she has a photo that she sent along with the email. Uh, kind of looks, I, I'm not sure how to describe it. It's sort of a yeah, purple Yeah, I, I saw the email. It, it came through my email and I just checked it out. My, my guess is it's probably a fungal leaf spot of some kind. I, I don't see a lot of pawpaw because it's not a plant that tends to be real hardy 
up in our area. I have fond memories of it from uh, my childhood because my dad was a soil scientist and he'd do mapping and bring fruits home when he when he when he found them in the wild. Um, but in any event, um, the disease looks probably like a fungal disease of some kind. Typical recommendation for that, as I've described for a lot of other leaf diseases, is when the tree sheds its leaves in the fall, collect up all of those leaves and get them away from the tree. So burn very hot compost if you have access to a municipal drop-off site where you can drop off yard waste, you could take it there as well. And if it would continue to be more severe, we might have to have you send in a sample, get a formal diagnosis. And then if you wanted to make fungicide treatments, we could certainly make recommendations for that as well. But again, usually I recommend doing this good cleanup for as a first step for managing most leaf diseases. Kelly emailed, uh, her peonies have had powdery mildew in the past year. She has learned to embrace the silvery foliage. However, this year they didn't have any. But now her climbing honeysuckle is covered, which is close to one of the peonies. Her question is, once powdery mildew is gone for a year, will it be back again next year? Can a plant gain immunity? Um. Yes, you'll most likely see it pretty much every year at some level or another. And one thing I will comment is that the powdery mildew that the person is seeing on the peony versus the honeysuckle, probably different fungi. There are lots of different fungi that cause powdery mildew, and they tend to be relatively uh, host-specific. In terms of uh, developing immunity, no, that typically is not the case. Um, You can buy varieties of certain types of plants that have been bred for resistance to powdery mildew. So for example, you can buy monardas that have been bred for resistance to powdery mildew. Um, let's see what else, phlox, which is another typical host, roses that have been bred for resistance. But typically you don't get spontaneous uh, resistance developed in plants that are already established in the environment. You'd have to go and buy another variety. You talked about pruning earlier, or pruning has come mm-hmm. up a couple of times. How do we use pruning to prevent disease? Um, oftentimes, it's by modifying the environment within the plant. So if you have a tree that has really dense foliage, you can selectively prune out branches to increase airflow. And what that will do during a wet season is when the leaves get wet, the leaves will dry more quickly. And that tends to be less favorable for the vast majority of leaf pathogens Uh, to prevent them from infecting. And the same thing with herbaceous plants, you tend to thin. So you remove plants here or there, or if you've got large clumps, as we talk with the peonies, you divide those and then plant them as smaller clumps farther apart. Yeah. And lilacs, of course, we've we've talked about pruning on lilacs, and I don't think we... And I've been guilty of this in the past myself Mm -hmm. with lilacs of not properly pruning it. The other thing with pruning with lilacs is that if you do it on a regular basis, it tends to stimulate more flower production because those plants um, tend to flower on the younger canes. So the recommendation with that is to kind of go in and look at all those, if you've got a shrub honeysuckle, all of those branches that are coming up from the base and routinely you kind of look at the a third of those branches that are the largest in diameter, which would be the older branches, and you prune those out. And then every three years, you've got practically a new plant. Yep, and you'll get better better flowering and also tend to cut down on a lot of the foliar diseases. 
Uh, Sue emailed that the person with the woodpecker problem eating sap and damaging trees, they love her suet feeder, so it seems to prefer it to moving up and down the tree bark. It may not solve the problem, but it does help for that person with the woodpecker oh. problem, setting out a suet feeder. Cool. Interesting idea. <laughs> I, I, I kind of like uh, that. Uh, it, it was kind of interesting to me, the... Uh, the uh, email that we got from Kelly, I think she's learned to love. That's I tell folks a lot of times the diseases that you're seeing aren't doing a ton of damage. So anything you can do to learn how to ignore them, you're probably be will probably be better for your mental health. And we can't That's not true of all diseases. And we can't overreact. I mean, there's yes, we can. We tend to uh, expect perfect, perfect landscapes. And I tell folks if you really want that. Uh, set out your plastic plants or your silk flowers and uh, <laughs> go in that direction because you're never going to have a perfect, perfect real garden. Oh, how's your garden look this year, by the way? Absolutely awful, as it always does, because <laughs> I do what I call Darwinian gardening. I put in plants, I give them benign neglect, and if they survive in my yard, they were meant to be there. <laughs> and if you had plant diseases of your own that you you've just ignored, I suppose. Yes, indeed. I have a lot of hosta virus X for anyone who wants that disease, a little bit of cedar apple rust in my crab apples, and uh, I can find other things as well if you if you would like them. I have tobacco rattle virus in my uh, bleeding heart in the backyard. So, What is it? Tobacco? Uh, it's, it's called tobacco rattle virus. What is It's that? what I call the Harry Potter disease because it, has, it makes little lightning bolt patterns on the leaves. So it's like <laughs> Harry Potter's scar. <laughs> Oh, oh my goodness. Well, I've got, I don't have too much. I've got a little powdery mildew, but I, I don't yeah. have mu much else. Well, and there's a Harry Potter reference in my limerick, in my limerick book, when I talk about tobacco rattle virus. That's one of the, it's one of the limericks in the book. Well, we're going to have to talk some more about that book, by the way. Brian Huddleston, our guest today. Brian is the director of the Plant Disease Diagnostic Clinic within the Department of Plant Pathology at UW-Madison. Uh, and if you have something, uh, a question for him, uh, I, you know, Plant Disease Diagnostic Clinic at UW, Brian is, every time I have uh, some, a horticulturist on and a, a disease might come up, they send it, they say, send it off to Brian. He always sends a quick answer. <laughs> He's always a, he always comes back with a quick answer. Brian Huddleston, our guest today. I'm Larry Mueller for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. You're listening to Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. Larry Mueller here with my guest, Brian Huddleston, back with us once again. He is director of the Plant Disease Diagnostic Clinic in the Department of Plant Pathology at UW-Madison. So, what gardening questions are on your mind? I hope you'll give us a call. The number is 
1-800-642-1234 or send an email to ideas at wpr.org ideas at wpr.org and if you've got a photo you could send that along with the email as well and we'll see what we can do with it love to have that Sherry emailed uh, Brian to ask if cutting down a black walnut tree will that take care of the juglone problem uh, well, she says for the next season, and I don't in in about twenty years um, <laughs> or so. Unfortunately, yeah, it won't take care of it for next year. The juglones can continue to be exuded from the roots. That's those are the toxins produced by a walnut tree. Um, they can hang around and continue to be exuded from those roots for an extended period of time. And I've seen estimates on the order of fifteen to twenty years, uh, depending upon the source. Oh, so man. unfortunately, no. So you're really dealing with um, either creating raised beds to try to deal with the problem or growing plants in pots that you can set in the area um, where the walnut tree has its influence. Somebody else is wondering uh, about fungicides and their potential impact on insects. Mm-hmm. Certainly there are um, potential problems with certain types of fungicides that can adversely affect um, insects. And one of the things you always want to get when you're buying a fungicide or considering it, I would look up not only the pesticide label, so that's usually included with the product when you buy it, but you can find these online. But I would also look up, uh, they go under various names, but material safety data sheet or safety data sheet, uh, you may find them listed either way online. And those have additional information that include information on toxicity to certain insects, um, birds, fish, that sort of thing. And you can take in that information to make an informed decision about whether you want to use fungicides or not. I provide information on fungicide use, um, but I'm not a big fan of using fungicides. I prefer that people start with cultural methods, like we've talked about uh, leaf cleanup or plant spacing or pruning, those sorts of things. There may be situations where fungicides are needed or are really something that someone wants to use, but I think those uh, decisions need to be made in an informed way, and, and fungicides should only be used very sparingly. Uh, you can call in, by the way, questions. Give a call at 800-642-1234. Email to ideas at wpr.org. I wanted to talk with you a little about your book, Limerick Etsia, Plant Pathologist's Book of Verse. We talked about it, a, I don't know, a few months back, but I, I'm sure many people didn't didn't hear that. So tell us about That's, the book. It's It's pretty okay. cool. Kind of my COVID project when I was stuck at home and, and trying to think of, of uh, how to provide plant disease information, particularly to sort of a youth audience, because that's not a demographic I normally work with. And I had a limerick that some colleagues and I had written years and years ago when I used to do ginseng work that's been on my refrigerator at work for <laughs> a long, long time. And I thought, I wonder if people would get a kick out of disease-themed limericks. So I wrote a book. It's 52 limericks. Um, there's 50, uh, 52 different diseases. There's a limerick. There's a prose description of the disease with information on how to control the disease, photographs. And then I did original artwork to kind of frame everything on the pages. 
And it's a color book. Uh, we sell it as a fundraiser for the clinic. It's $25 plus, of course, sales tax and shipping and handling and all that fun stuff. And uh, you can order it through my clinic website, which is uh, pddc.wisc.edu. Uh, and if you scroll down to the bottom, there are several tabs that um, talk about different projects I'm working on. And one is the Limerick book, and that'll lead you into an ordering page if you want to place an order. Uh, so <laughs> I, had such a, I had such a blast uh, <laughs> writing that book. It was a lot of fun. It was a fun project. The other thing, if you don't mind me plugging, is yeah. the other thing that I, I think we, I, I, I refer to our fact sheets all the time, and I have a whole series on plant diseases that, again, are available on my clinic website, but I was trying to figure out another way to make those more usable as an educational tool. So we decided to kind of create uh, equivalent to like Boy Scout merit badge sort of thing. So we've created what we call our plant disease medallion. So I, I did the artwork for all of these medallions. We have 130 fact sheets, created an, a little art piece for each uh, fact sheet. And then I wrote quizzes for each fact sheet. And so you can go onto my website. Again, if you scroll down and look for the medallion project and the tabs at the bottom of the main page, you can that'll lead you into this particular project. And so you read a fact sheet, you take a quiz. If you get 100% on the quiz, you get automatically emailed the electronic medallion <laughs> and uh, you can collect these. And I just got an email this morning. I knew that one particular person was doing a lot of this because I get announce i get emails when people take the quiz and when they successfully earn a medallion and the person emailed me this morning to tell me that she had successfully collected all 130 medallions so that's the first person oh. who's actually done that so that was pretty cool that is very very cool i love that well we we yeah. can talk about i want to talk some more maybe about that and about your book but penny and lacrosse has something for us let's go to penny hi penny thank you for calling Hello there. Thank you. I have a problem with my house plants, and it seems that um, there's white, almost like fuzzy, um, a spider web, but very thick in little round circles here and there. I take okay. and try to spray it with soapy water, and I brushed it off, and it's sticky. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking those could be something like mealybugs, um, which is an insect problem. So I can't speak very much in terms of management, but that would be something where I would give uh, PJ Leash, our uh, insect diagnostician, a call and talk with him about that. His phone number is uh, 608-262-6510, or you could take some photos and email those to him at P Leash, P-L-I-E-S-C-H at wisc.edu and he's a frequent guest on larry's show and he's a great guy and if you have insect questions he's the go-to person for that yeah and he's uh he was just on last week as a matter of fact mm -hmm. on, yeah. on this past week on the, our wednesday show yeah and if you go to the uw insect diagnostic lab yep uh you can uh, quickly get, I think, some information from him because he's, he, like Brian, is pretty quick to respond. <laughs> he's he's pretty darn quick. Well, um, Mary Jo wonders if there's a nine bark res resistant to powdery mildew. Go for a green foliage variety. 
of um, nine bark where I tend to see the powdery mildews are on the red foliage varieties and kind of on my hit list for powder mildews is Diablo. That's probably where I see the most severe powdery mildew. I believe there's a variety called summer wine as well, which where I've seen powdery mildew, pretty severe powdery mildew as well. But I usually don't see that disease on the green foliage varieties, at least not severe cases. Dennis from Boulder Junction emailed, uh, and to thank you for hosting the monthly plant disease clinic on Zoom. And thanks for being uh, gentle with seniors who are not proficient with Zoom. <laughs> you're quite welcome. Yeah, if, if you're interested in that, we don't have very many left in the year, but I'll probably try to do this again next year as well. I've been doing a monthly, um, a roughly two-hour talk on various topics. And, um, and we have three left. Actually, the September ones will close out registration probably this weekend. That one's going to be on diseases not to compost. And then I think the October one is on conifer diseases. I can't remember what the November one is, but the December one is on diseases you can ID by eye. And again, if you go to my website, scroll down towards the bottom, and there'll be another tab down there that says something about monthly plant disease talks. And that'll take you into a page that gives you all the topics that we've covered uh, for the year, and it'll lead you into a registration form. And we do request that you register for those, and we'll send you a reminder email with um, contact information for the Zoom session uh, just before the presentation. I have one coming up next Wednesday evening. These are in the win in the evening um, uh, on Wednesdays, usually the last Wednesday of the month, although they are a little bit variable in uh, November or December because I'm going to be traveling a little bit. Uh, are they? Is there a cost associated? No, these are free of charge, so feel free to take advantage of them. Brian Huddleston, our guest, give a call with your questions at 1-800-642-1234, 800-642-1234, or you could email us, the email address, ideas at wpr.org, ideas at wpr.org. Somebody's wondering if you can give us a little preview of your book, Limerick Etsia. Um that would take a little bit of doing here. Hang on, if you can. Uh, let me talk about another project that I'm working on, if yeah. you don't mind. Um, if I can't, if I can keep myself from getting distracted as I look <laughs> up the uh, book, I don't have a copy of the book here, but I've got it on my my computer. Another project that I'm working on is um, I know a lot of people like Lego, and so um, the Lego has come out with a new botanical series. So you can buy Lego kits that you put together. Uh, plants. And so I thought if um, you could do it with plants, why not with plant diseases? So I am currently working on kind of Lego kits where you'll be able to build plant diseased plants. So the one that we're working on right now, and I think will probably be debuted this fall, um, is one on blossom end drop, which is a disease on tomatoes where the bottom part of the fruit turns brown. And um, and we that one I can buy all the parts from Lego to to uh, actually create these kits, and we've got a instruction manual, and we've got some other supplemental um, educational materials that will come with these kits. And right now, um, we're going to be using those for uh, our. We have a group in our department, graduate students that do outreach, and um, they are going to be using them. I think somewhere. I think maybe Monona, one of the public libraries in December, 
and we're getting together next Wednesday to get all the parts that I've purchased and get them all <laughs> sorted out into the kits. So we'll have 20 kits. And I'm also working with the 4-H, Extension 4-H educators, and they're going to be uh, doing a program with that particular kit as well. So the kit itself, you you actually make uh, a plant. You that... make a you make a diseased tomato with blossom end rot. Yeah, the Legos. Yeah, I I love it. <laughs> I, I love that. I I uh, okay. I can't wait to. I'm going to stop. When when is that going to be available at the Monona Library? <laughs> well, I I I'll have to check whether it is Monona. I'll email you, Larry, and and yeah, shoot uh, me an email. Details. I just I just. Uh, got the announcement from the graduate students that they were um, going to do that. Um, so that just came in the mail today. I'm going to find the tobacco rattle virus since I mentioned that one with the kind of the Harry Potter. You're going to have to send me reference. A, you're going to have to send me a photo of uh, that tomato blight. Uh, uh, or the I'll, I'll, I'll send you the others I'm working on as well. Um, because we'll we can post that up in a uh, in one of my blogs to maybe help the process along a, a little along. bit. Yeah, the big thing I've I've got about ten designs right now for different diseases. Um, I did corn corn smut was the latest one. The problem with a lot of them is that I can I have a program on my computer where I can design the models um, and I can use pretty much any part Lego has ever offered, and I can choose any color they've ever offered, but I can't necessarily get all the parts I need in the colors that I want. So I may have to do some 3D printing of certain parts in order to be able to finish some of the other kits, but the Blossom and Rots, we can order things. I finally found the... Uh, <laughs> Fin fin finally found my book on my computer. You'd think I'd have it more readily available, but it's just, you caught me off guard with this, Larry. Um, so in any event, so uh, we'll do the one on tobacco rattle. So this is a viral disease and it's a very pretty virus. Um, on leaves of the fair bleeding heart, a virus that rattles does start like a bolt from afar or a famed wizard scar. It makes plant disease fine modern art. I love it. Oh, I, I've had so much fun going through that book uh, of yours. I, I, I hope. Have you sold many? I mean, are there many? about a hundred copies? Right, we're not talking about a New York Times bestseller here, but um, I mainly want to sell enough copies that I can make back the money that I spent in printing it out because we we had to spend. Um, of course, nobody wants to publish this uh, because it's a rather niche market, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's I, it's kind of a personal pro project for me, and I thought, again, a different way to teach people about diseases. And I have a history in my family. My grandmother was an author, and um, my my paternal grandmother, and my dad is uh, published, so you can go to the Library of Congress and find books that they've written. So I just wanted to keep up the tradition of that. Uh, and by the way, you can go online to wpr.org slash Larry, and uh, find that interview that I think Jill did the interview with you. Yes, Jill did the interview with me. Yeah, on on yeah. the on, on that goes into more detail about the book, and then just go to wpr.org and and write Brian Brian's name in there, Brian Huddleston's name in there, and that'll pop up if you want to listen yeah. to that. And, and everybody has problems pronouncing the book, but it's a it's a it's a word mash actually. So it's limerick. And then rickettsia, and rickettsia is a type of disease-causing organism, so that's 
where Limericatsia comes from. So, and the cover art of the disease is, is a disease called citrus greening that originally was thought to be caused by a Rickettsia-like organism. So I thought that kind of fit in. Oh, so man. it's this weird, weird name for a book, but it does make sense. Of It's kind of an end joke for some of my colleagues, um, actually. <laughs> a number of listeners have uh, phoned in or, or emailed to ask how to measure one inch of rain. How do they know when they've watered enough? What I usually recommend is, you know, string out your soaker hose, and then if you like tuna or some sort of flat can or a pie plate or something like that, that you can kind of sink into the soil so the lip, or you can even just set it on the soil and string part of the soaker hose off over that. And then just let that collect water. And when you get roughly two inches, one inch or two inches, depending upon whether you're doing established plants or new transplants, new transplants need more water. Um, but when you collect the appropriate amount in that can, then you're kind of done with the water. So that's that's a pretty easy way to do it. And then you, easy, very easy way to do it. And if you time it. <laughs> you can do it by timing afterwards, right? Yeah, you just do it by timing afterwards. Um, mm -hmm. John in Minnesota called to ask if you talk about bird's foot trefoil. I'm not sure why. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of diseases on bird's foot trefoil. It's, I love bird's foot trefoil, although it's quite kind of weedy and invasive. I love how it grows in cityscapes, uh, kind of at the edge of the gutters and kind of grows down into the, into the gutters. It's really a forage crop. So it's grown as a, something to feed to, to animals. Um, I'm trying to think what, I, I love the look of it, although I don't know how well it would really perform as a true ornamental in a, in a landscape if you wanted to plant it like that. In terms of diseases, probably the ones that I, I can remember, I don't get many samples of that, would be some of root rots um, might be issues with that particular plant. And birch tree, somebody else wondered about birch tree diseases. Now, you know, I had a birch tree in my lawn in my, in my Monona home uh, years back, and uh, somebody came over and said, well, you've got pretty much everything. You've got bronze birch borer, <laughs> birch you've got borer. birch leaf miner. <laughs> it tends to be insect problems on birch more so than diseases. Um, what I see as issues that I would typically diagnose would be chlorosis, which we talked about earlier. And then sometimes um, canker diseases on occasion. Um, sometimes we will get wood rots in the trunks and then you'll get kind of shelf fungi that'll form after that. But again, if you're really seeing problems with a birch, particularly a paper birch, it's more likely an insect problem than a disease problem. And that birch tree was there when I bought the house. Uh, mm -hmm. um, this is some years back, and it's probably for Monona and Madison, uh, this area, it's not the best tree to have. No, if you want to plant a birch tree, it's best that you do it in an area that's somewhat shaded, cooler. Um, you give the plants plenty of moisture. If you Where you tend to get problems with things like bronze birch borers, if you plant the tree out in the middle of your yard, surrounded with turf up to the trunk um, it gets hot and water stressed and that tends to be what attracts uh, those boar insects well here we are starting to run out of time in the last minute any advice as we go into the fall season for uh, either looking for disease or preventing 
Uh, just good fall cleanup. Again, if you don't want to do that in the fall, if you want to leave sites for insects to kind of overwinter, then I would try to do that before your plants begin to sprout in the spring. But that's really the big thing to remember for the fall. And then as we get into the colder periods um, and trees go dormant, winter pruning is always a good thing to think about. So if you want to thin your trees a little bit, I would do that in the middle of the winter time so that you um, are make the plants less prone to infection. If we do pruning during the summertime, you can get infections through those pruning cuts. Best to do that most of the time in the winter. There are exceptions, but for a general rule of thumb, pruning in the wintertime is a good time to do it. And you did that in just almost exactly one minute. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> and thanks for the show, Brian. We'll look forward to your next Thanks visit. for having me. I really appreciate it. Brian Adelson, Director of the Plant Disease Diagnostic Clinic and the Department of Plant Pathology at UW-Madison. Always a pleasure to have Dr. Death stop by. Next week on Garden Talk, by the way, uh, Mark Conlock from the Green Bay Botanical Garden will be back to talk about um, bulbs. That's uh, Friday at 11 and Saturday morning at 6. And, of course, anytime online... And so that's next week for Garden Talk. And then Monday, coming up on Monday, we'll talk about the science and history of glass blowing. If you thought, why are we going to do that? Well, I'll tell you what, it's pretty darn interesting. And then we'll check in with the weather guys and find out about climate and weather concerns. That's Monday starting at 11. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Stay with us. Have a great weekend. I'm Larry Mueller for the Ideas Network.